Our minds are so powerful that what we focus on reverberates through every aspect of our lives. So why not see what happens when we put our attention on all the good things people are doing? Join me for the good with Teresa G as we start a ripple effect by focusing on all the greatness in the world. Tony Brown is an architect and educator who has dedicated the past 40 years to working in transform education, teaching how design can preserve the natural world. As the founder of the COSA Institute, he has designed a cutting edge interdisciplinary curriculum that connects design and ecology to address the many environmental challenges we face. Hi, Tony. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Teresa. It's good to hear you. It's good to hear you too. Um, just to let everyone know, I am an ECOSA alumni, and so you'll be picking up on that through our conversation here, uh, because ECOSA affected me very deeply and um, was a catalyst for a lot of the things I do today. Um, and one thing I just have to say is that many people might not know this about Tony, but he is a very he has a very hands-on approach at ECOSA and still accompanies students on quite a few of the field trips. And a lot of the field trips, um, we camp. And I'm not talking RV camping, I'm talking, you know, tent camping. And he actually will tent camp with us. And I find, personally, I find that absolutely inspirational because what are you, like 80 now, Tony? Yep, yeah. And you're still camping? Um, Not so much. I did did (laughs) last year, but not this year. <laughs> I mean, I think, I just think that's inspirational because, you know, there's a lot of people that stop ca- camping at like 30, 40, and here you are still going out there. And, and, um, I'm just, you know, it says a lot to how your, how strong your body is and your mind. And, um, I just think that's really cool. I had to tell you that. Oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, One of the things you say, Tony, is that in a move towards a more sustainable architecture, that you believe we must also examine what sustains us as individuals and as cultures. We must remember to sustain ourselves spiritually and the ultimate goal of the aesthetic. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, one of the things that really disturbed me about uh, design and architecture was that we tend to be blinded into a focus on just one thing, which is the aesthetic of the building and uh, how it functions in uh, reality. Architects very rarely take into account how their buildings affect people. And buildings, of course, affect us very profoundly because we are biology and we actually evolved by being uh, interacting with the natural environment and that shaped us to be what we were. Well, now we live pretty much in totally artificial environments and so those are affecting us, but we really don't have a lot of ideas of how they are affecting us. And so my idea was that we need to look at architecture from a, a, a way it functions at the emotional and spiritual level for human beings to, to live in them. 
we create the, these office buildings with sort of uh, fluorescent lights and no windows. And does that have any effect on the way we are? I would say it probably does, and it's probably not all positive. So just trying to expand the area that we use to determine whether architecture is good or bad or indifferent. And unfortunately, most of our architecture is indifferent, but some of it is pretty bad. And what? Yeah, because when you start, you know, when I always tell people your house or your mm -hmm. office is like your second skin because it affects you that deeply because you're spending most of your time, especially us up north, we're spending most right. of our time in those spaces. Um, so it's just, you know, or even your third skin, if you want to count clothing, but, uh, after that, the, that has a huge overall effect Absolutely. on your well-being. Absolutely. The spaces yeah. where you're staying. Yeah. Things like lighting, views, uh, temperature, um, all of those things affect how we respond to a particular environment. And, uh, and, and, you know, one of the things that really, uh, got me interested in this whole field was that we actually don't, as architects, look at ourselves in context. We sometimes look at ourselves as um, part of a neighborhood, maybe, but generally we look at individual buildings and we design them as individual buildings with not much connection to the existing culture or the existing neighborhood or, you know, human interactions and how do they actually improve human interactions, um, you know, instead of separating us out as a culture. When did you recognize that, uh, when did you recognize that, that we were designing in us, designing more of a separate uh, entity, each, each building, each place? Well, generally it was during my time at Arcasanti, um, which is Paolo Soleri's, um, designed for a three-dimensional city. And, you know, I began to see that we segregate everything. We segregate our society by age, by income levels, by um, creating walled-in uh, developments that separate us from uh, society at large. And, and, you know, there's a lot of retirement um, buildings like there's tons in Prescott because it's an older population. And those are like um, ghettos of older people who never interact with children or teenagers or anyone other than people their own age. And to me, that's kind of a deadening process because you don't stay current with the world. You, you become this hermit in these... Uh, in these retirement uh, communities. And Prescott does have a lot of those because uh, when I was looking for a house there, when I was uh, there, a lot of the places were said, you know, 65 and up only. <laughs> oh, <laughs> like, yeah. Wow. I've never seen that before. <laughs> it's my, my version of hell. Is to have to <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Um, well, so you also say that we're a society that busily band-aids symptoms rather than sorting out causes. Yeah. Um, for example, I mean, you can use roads as an example. Uh, 
what we do is we build a road and then it gets congested. So instead of figuring out why is it congested and how could we change that, what we do is we just add another lane onto the road and that attracts more traffic. So it's a Band-Aid solution for a very short time. So then it gets it congested again. What do we do? We add another lane. Instead of looking at, well, maybe it would be good to zone uh, housing developments so they're actually very near to uh, workplaces like office spaces and commercial spaces. But what we tend to do is, again, we separate everything out. We have commercial areas and we have housing areas and we have uh, entertainment areas, and those are all separate, so we have to drive because that's the way the structure of our cities is laid out. We can't uh, walk out of our door, walk three or four blocks and go to work. We have to drive sometimes an hour, sometimes an hour and a half just to get to where the jobs are. And part of that's because of zoning. Um, zoning has been one of the forces that's really segregated us from uh, a more uh, rich kind of environment. Uh, when you live in a dense city, for example, you can leave your home, walk half a block, have a coffee, then maybe get on a subway and get to work in about five, ten minutes. And to me, that um, is a is a perfect way to be living instead of getting in a car to go to the coffee shop and then getting in your car to go to work and then getting in your car to go drop off your kids and then uh, go to a car and get in a car to take them to uh, ballet lessons. We spend so much time traveling. Um, and one of the things we don't ask, for example, we don't really ask the right questions uh, to get the right solutions. For example, we, we, look at how can we make it quicker and more convenient for cars to get from place to place? Well, the real question is how do we provide access? And access is not necessarily cars. Access could be walking. And that means you restructure your town or city so that it encourages walking or biking. Um, and it's shorter distances between where you live and where you work and where you're entertained and so on. So mixed-use development really begins to look at that as a solution, so, which is a much deeper approach than just uh, looking at a symptom and saying, okay, we'll fix the symptom. You know, I'll never forget uh, when, we, when I landed in Amsterdam and I, I couldn't quite figure it out. I was sitting in a cafe outside and I could not figure it out for a while what was odd or weird about um, what was going on. And then I realized that it was absolutely almost quiet and still because there's very little car use in Amsterdam. It's all bikes. So all you hear is the occasional um, ring of the bell. And I finally realized, I'm like, oh, my gosh, there's some sort of like form of serenity over this whole city because there's not the beeping and the loud rumbling of engines. And that, that changed me. That was such a huge realization for me when I realized what I was missing. I was yeah, missing the loudness. That noise is also a stressor. So, again, it's like... Uh, from an environmental point of view, having this constant noise in your background is also a way of uh, creating tension in people. 
And so, a, so a calm, quiet environment is really a way of uh, reducing that stress that people have. I agree. And I, you know, I wanted to ask you, uh, part of the ACOSA curriculum is to send the students out with Cody London where they go uh, out in nature with only a wool blanket and some water bottles and survive. Uh, Cody Mm -hmm. teaches them how to survive for about three days. And I wanted to, you know, my idea when I came back to uh, class after that experience, you asked us, you know, how do you feel? And what was really huge to me is that I, when I entered city limits, I could feel this sort of slight overstimulation going on and within me after being out and completely in nature for three days. And, uh, and, and, and that was really a, a big thing for me because I realized that our society in general is very overstimulating. And I was wondering if that is why, why did you incorporate that experience into the curriculum? Was it to help us realize things like that or? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one of the things to show the contrast, but it's also an intent of saying we talk about being sustainable all the time and you know, everybody is sustainable now these days. Um, but we never address what sustain what sustainable means. Does it mean we're sustaining an American lifestyle for everybody on the planet? Are we sustaining a, um, a homeless person's lifestyle for everybody on the planet? So this is an idea of if you want to know what real sustainability is, it's, you just have to go out with you and nature and not all these uh, filters that we put between us. Because even when we go camping, we take all this tech stuff. We have lanterns and, and uh, stoves and, and folding chairs and everything else that we carry when we go out into nature. So this experience is really exposing you to that idea that only nature is truly sustainable and we as a species used to be part of that uh, sustainable system. And then we separated ourselves from it, mostly from the time we started doing agriculture. And the other thing is um, when you're on that trip, you have very limited amounts of food. And so it's interesting because most of our students have never really suffered hunger. And we've had lots of feedback from students saying it was it was uncomfortable, but it was really kind of a revelation that, you know, that supermarket abundance is not real when you actually get to a truly sustainable position. Um, and also it's a very strong bonding experience for all the students that come to to the institute it it really is it's absolutely a great way to start building that tribe right away off the bat yep um so let's that goes back to the whole idea that you and the COSA curriculum is constantly um reminding us that using nature as a model in design can solve a lot of our current problems. Yeah. And one of the things that we forget about is that everything is connected. 
And in nature, everything is connected. Um, you know, if you're in a forest, actually the roots of the trees are actually connected to each other by microcorsa. And um, trees actually speak to each other. And uh, um, so there's a real network within an ecosystem that works as a whole. In other words, it's not some tree in the forest that's saying, okay, now I'm, I'm the chief tree. I'm going to give you so much water and I'm going to give you so much nutrients um, and I'm going to take this much for myself. It's actually a continual ongoing negotiation between all the species that make up an ecosystem. And we've forgotten that complexity because we as humans often have a really hard time with complex ideas. We like to split everything down into single subjects, um, mostly because Descartes was the philosopher who uh, pushed that approach. And it's really that we have to reintegrate our thinking to match that way that nature works. And biomimicry is to a certain extent working in that direction looking at nature and saying, well, how did nature do that? Because um, it really seems to work. And one of the things that comes out of that is that form, the actual morphology of a design in nature is a lot of what its, um, its, its uh, benefits are in terms of how it functions. But I'd like to go way deeper and say it's not only about uh, the things in nature it's about the process in nature how, do, how does nature process information uh, we have the internet now and it's sort of really free for all and of course it's beginning to be controlled more and more by a few major companies and of course nature is not controlled by any one single group of uh, well you could argue that a little bit, not, not actually controlled by one organism. Um, the only one organism that controls everything is us, and we need to be a little more humble in terms of nature's been doing this for billions of years, and we should actually pay attention and look at the models that nature has evolved and say, can't we begin to evolve into the similar way? So it's an imagining in a political system or an economic system or a social system, how do we make it more complex, not simpler, because we've been really good at simplifying things and we need to get better at complexifying things. And, you know, we, we try so hard to control it all, but it's really um, becoming quite obvious that we have not as much control as we think as we deal with all these natural disasters. You know, this summer was like a huge time for natural disasters um, all over the world at one time. And I think it had a, it, you know, had people start thinking, um, you know, why is this, why is this happening? You know? And um, I think that it was definitely an opportunity to start thinking about, the complexity of our planet and what our role is. Yeah, and the irony really is, uh, you know, we've been talking about climate change for like 50 years and more, 
Um, and we really haven't ever really addressed the problem correctly. You know, we, we put it off because we just don't want to believe that things could possibly get that bad. Um, so we had opportunities for the last 60 years or more to actually begin to address this problem. Well, now we're going to have to address it in a much more um, aggressive way because um, nature is, going, is about to whack us across the head and we need to really begin to look at systems and how can we uh, begin to work with nature instead of against nature. And I think that's one of the keys that we tend to separate ourselves from nature instead of allowing nature to thrive with us instead of using all the land area for our own uses. Right. And, um, you know, I mean, ever since I went to Akosa, I, I look at the world completely differently and how we, you know, when there's flooding and when there's flooding in Houston, I'm like, Oh, if only we had, you know, we had some help there to manage their water because it's all just pavement. So there's no absorption. There's no, there's nowhere for the water to uh, get sponged up with. And it's just a great, a great approach that ACOSA has with just transforming the way students look at the world. And I want you to sort of talk about what inspired you to start ACOSA and what is ACOSA's mission? Oh, okay. Well, it was started through frustration. Um, I, uh, I, as an architect, you know, I went to architecture school in the 50s and I sort of realized, um, you know, around 2000, that architecture schools are still training architects in the same way I was trained. And, you know, we're going into the 21st century here. Um, and we don't have a new way of teaching architecture. So I started thinking about what do we need to do to create that. So I actually started uh, teaching at Prescott College and um, actually for two or three semesters and we got to a point where we had five classes going all from the shape of the city to, uh, you know, nature and humans and so on. But then there was a, a financial issue and so they actually closed down that whole program and that was in... 19, the 19, late 1980s, so they were way ahead if they'd have kept it going. But So anyway, it was a trigger, so I thought, well, screw it. I'll make my own school. <laughs> Good for you. Taking a... I had no idea what I was making doing. Making an opportunity but, out of it. Yeah, but it, yeah, it was like um, I did it, and eventually we put something out on the Internet, and we got our first 15, 14 students. Um, in 2000 so so it was my frustration with and also it took like uh, almost two years to get Prescott College to say yes to the program um, because things in big organizations that are hierarchical structures tend to move really really slowly they do. And because, <laughs> because we're small uh, we can be pretty nimble. We can change the curriculum. We can um, use different faculty. We can do all sorts of um, 
innovative stuff because we don't have to go through a curriculum committee and you know, all the red and, tape. Yeah, and the administration, and, yeah, red tape. So it's a very freeing thing to be able to do it this way. Um, and it's really been a fantastic experience, and the students that come through here are just wonderful. Um, I, you know, I remember most of them, and um, I certainly remember you, Teresa. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't let you forget me, do I? <laughs> yeah, so it's very, uh, for me, it's actually one of the things that I like doing, being my age. It's really, uh, it keeps me young. It, and I, I tell the students, I'm a vampire. I'm going to suck your energy out. Um, <laughs> keep, keep, keep going. You, sh- you definitely challenge the students to look. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a challenging situation because you, for someone like me who is coming out of being in, what was very similar to corporate America. It's very challenging because all of a sudden it's working together, looking out for each other, watch, you know, community. And it's, it's very different from the way the world is working. Um, But it's, it's a very healing and enlightened, enlightening experience overall because it takes you back to your roots, to our roots. I feel. Yeah, I'm glad to hear it. As peoples, as as peoples. So, um, and I have to tell you, I told my mom I was interviewing you, and she got all excited because not only did you, you know, me going to Acosta change my life and my family's life, but even my parents' life. Um, when I when we started learning about permaculture, I remember calling my mom and dad and just talking for hours on end about permaculture. And they loved the idea so much. It inspired them to basically tear up. They live in a a suburb and they tore up their whole yard. And now it's this huge urban farm. I'll have to send you pictures. And I mean, because they actually, you know, my property is going at such a slow speed compared to what they have done. Uh, and it's just so impressive. And now, you know, you go there and you're basically just eating out of their yard. Um, I would say about eight months. They live in a cold climate, but I'd say about eight months out of the year, um, they have everything you need to eat right there in their little hat, you know, I think it's like a half acre. And it's, so my mom said, you know, wanted me to, reminded me to tell you that not only did you affect my life and everyone I work with, but my parents really became very passionate about permaculture, which is fabulous. Yeah. Good for your parents. That's great. Yeah. Um, Oh, go, go ahead. I said, send me pictures of their garden. I'd love to see it. I will. I will. When I go next, I'll get some pictures. Um, Let's see. So I wanted to talk to you about community. Um, ECOSA curriculum fosters a community feeling like I've never experienced before. And it was such a transformational experience to be a part of that community. Can you talk a bit about why fostering community is so important in redesigning our world? Sure. Um, You know, for me, community is the only real security that we have. Um, And that used to be a given, you know, when we were a small agrarian village. Um, And what we've done is we've really handed over so many of the things that make us secure to um, organizations, like instead of 
children taking care of parents or um, or helping other people out with building houses or doing those kind of things that we always used to do. Now, Social Security and Medicare take care of parents when they're sick, um, hospitals and uh, hospice and these um, retirement homes, uh, assisted living homes, have really replaced community and not in a particularly good way. Um, and it's because we're really isolated and separated that those kind of things that used to be normal where an extended family would be taking care of each other, we've really become individually isolated and we have to rely on these big social systems uh, administered by somebody outside the community uh, to actually take care of us. So for me, uh, being part of a community is really uh, being able to call on resources when you really need them. Um, and obviously, people can't just give up their jobs to look after uh, parents, but it's one of those things that our societies are, sh are starting to move towards. For example, you know, there's now uh, moves to get more um, leave to look after parents or uh, a spouse that's uh, experiencing problems. So really um, having to be part of a community is a, is a commitment and I was just saying yesterday that, um, you know, people often come to Prescott looking for a community like it's a commodity that you actually go out and find. But actually community is a building process that we need to work together to build a community. Um, and, you know, you have to, in a way, be embedded in one place for a fair amount of years so that you begin to know everybody and know um, the, the neighbourhood and the community and the climate and all those things. Um, so for me, it's really important that we understand how to begin to create that community. And like you were saying earlier, it's really part of that um, Cody trip where it's take care of each other because taking care of each other is really, really important. Um, so instead of uh, handing off that care to a, an organization or a government agency, it's really important to begin thinking, how can we as a society start taking care of each other instead of uh, abdicating that kind of responsibility? I remember uh, something that just blew my mind. We were going on a field trip, and at the time I was vegan. And where I come from, you know, if you're vegan and you go to an event or something, you just don't eat because everyone's like, what? You're vegan? I'm sorry, but we eat meat. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so I remember we're going on a field trip, and someone says to me, I said, well, I'll just bring my own stuff. And someone says, no, if one of us is vegan, we're all vegan. And we'll all cook vegan and we'll eat vegan. And it just, um, 
not only did it just warm my heart, but it just made me feel like I belonged instead of this outsider because I chose different food choices. Yep. And it was just an amazing, I think about it all the time now because it immediately connected us all. And it was like, you know, it doesn't matter what, if one is suffering, we all suffer. If one is doing good, we all are doing yeah. good. And we've really, as a society, you know, leaving ECOSA, um, moving back into society, I thought, wow, Tony is genius in the way that he implements that, um, that fostering of community because it's really not easy to find anymore, right. you know? Right. No, I know. Yeah, that's a kind of tragedy of, you know, of our society is um, we, you know, now we look at communities online, my Facebook community and my Twitter community. And, <laughs> well, that is, that's sad. <laughs> yeah, very sad because we've lost the real community and so we're, we're replacing it with these um, online um we call them communities, but they're not. I don't think they're really communities. I mean, they connect people, um, they connect friends, but it's not like you're physically present. Present. So, if somebody needs something, you can immediately jump in and try and uh, give them what they need in terms of care or in terms of whatever. And science is catching up with this because research is now suggesting for people to live a healthy life to, to they're suggesting that people actually spend time and socialize with other people around five hours a day and not just work. It's like socializing, you know, community. And so that was really interesting to me. So that's actually creates a healthier human, a healthier mind and body and soul. Right. And I think health is actually a really important issue because, um, you know, we look at the health of humans, but we need to look at the health of uh, nature as well. And actually, if you look at health as a measure of how sustainable we are, we're really not very doing a very good job. Um, and if you look at what makes people healthy, it is not being stressed out. That's a big factor in terms of disease. Um, and yet our whole society and work environment often is full of stress. Um, and then in terms of nature's health, um, it's been shown that we can actually, if we have a view out to nature, it actually reduces your heart rate. It um, makes you feel calmer. And it's important psychologically to have a connection with nature. And if we could only begin to stop being afraid of nature, because we really are afraid of nature, we want to get rid of it. Um, we like to control the plants in our parks and our um, gardens. So it's really uh, being willing to accept that nature is messy um, you know, if you just let your garden go wild, it gets very messy, and us humans don't like messy things. And so if we can learn to live with nature, nature will uh, make us healthier, and we can make nature healthier by providing more habitat space for all the other species on the planet. Yes. 
Yes. And then um, at ACOSA, you and all the faculty teach the students to design with the goal of creating an ecologically harmonious society. What does that look like to you? Oh, um, that's a big subject. Um, Yes, that is. Just tell me what that looks like so people can uh, understand what that. Well, I think one of the things that we want to do is to, to get rid of the barriers to this idea of community. Um, in the old days, in places like New York, you know, there was immigrants living next to millionaires and, uh, you know, the, the garbage collector living next to, um, you know, very rich people. Um, now what we've done is we've separated this out so we no longer see uh, people that aren't in our own group as real people. So it's very hard to care what, for what you don't see. And it's very easy to then get rid of any f- sense of responsibility for those people. So trying to look at how do we change the way we design uh, neighborhoods, cities, and you know towns. And one of the things that I think would be really important is to bring back the idea of a multi-species environment. In other words, we only really create environments for ourselves and nature gets pretty short shrift in terms of uh, we push nature away, we bulldoze, we clear the area, we pave it over. Um, So one of the things I would see as doing that is to have nature coexist with us. Um, And the other thing would be to have mixed-use development. Instead of zoning things so we separate out all the functions of a society, I think we need to zone everything for mixed-use. If you're going to build a housing development, you have to build in uh, office space, you have to build in commercial space, you have to build in corner stores, for example, um, which have disappeared they used to be the thing that people would walk to to get something they forgot at the, you know, the supermarket. Um, so really, it's again this idea of recomplexifying our society, uh, both physically and um, psychologically, so that neighbors, you know, if you walk if you walk down a typical sub- suburban street, generally all you see is garage doors. You. It used to be that you'd see people sitting out on their porch and you'd say, hi, how are you doing? And, uh, or you'd see them out on, in their garden doing something. And there used to be places that were communal places where people would meet. Um, and that's really gone the way of, of all other things that were positive. So I think... Um, making sure that we really understand that separation is really not conducive to a real society. And it seems that the U.S. has gone more this way because when I was touring through Europe, it seemed like there was a lot more of socializing out on the streets and spots and cafes outside. And I remember coming back to the U.S. and sort of looking for that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's like there's a there's not a real public realm anymore. Um, 
you know, for example, the um, we have a big square in our town with trees. Yes, and, I love that square. Yeah, it's great. Uh, and, you know, there's events there. But the, the irony is if you want to protest anything, you have to ask the people you're protesting against if you can protest. And <laughs> yes. It's kind of nutty because, um, you know, public gatherings, uh, we just did the Women's March and, you know, the, they had been negotiating with the city for, I think, two months and they couldn't get the city to agree to let them have amplification so people could give speeches. And to me, that's what, that not that something to do with the Constitution that, you have the right to assemble. And um, so the Women's March was great. It was really big. and But there was nobody, um, you know, getting the crowd excited or talking about the issues or anything. Um, so to me, that's that part of that controlling thing that seems to be more and more part of what our government and society wants to do is to control everything that we do, especially if it involves protesting. Um, and, you know, it used to be that we would protest out in the streets, but now they put up protest zones that are far enough away from the event that's happening that they're not going to have much impact. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, that's part of our, that's been part of our society is that we could voice our concerns as groups and do it wherever we wanted, whenever we wanted, you know? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's part of my radical background, I guess. I actually didn't get get radicalized until I came to the States in 68. Of course, there was the Vietnam War and protests and protests. That was a very radical time in general. Yeah, I got really radicalized and... uh, Although, you know, radical is good. Radical means root. So you go back to the root of things and look at, is this what we really want? And I think one of the, you know, one of the other problems I see is that we don't have a vision for our society. Um, There's not really a leadership saying, here's the vision of what our planet could be like or what our society could be like or what our country could be like. Um, we just we just talk about economics all the time, which is not really a vision. It just means make more money, um, and we really don't address things like homelessness and uh, you know dr- the whole opioid problem. We we just um, we don't have a real idea of what would we like this country to look like in ten years or twenty years. Um, And I think that's really important because if you don't set a visionary goal, how are you actually going to know how to begin to move towards it? And I think there's a lot of opportunity in that um, because, you know, we all create vision. I mean, I do a vision board every year. And so, I mean, I I definitely see the value and the importance in 
creating your future visions. But there's so much opportunity right now where our society is and where design is at and architecture. And I just want to talk to you about that because these grassroots movements like ECOSA and there's so many of them popping up all over. Um, And there's quite a bit of opportunity in that. And you speak to that with your students about the opportunities of these times very often. Yeah. Well, you know, times of turmoil are often times of opportunity too. Um, And so one of the things that I think that we are seeing is a gradual uh, breaking down of our institutions. And I don't mean that in a sort of negative way, but it's um, looking at our economic situation. You know, it's booming right now, but we're headed for another bust and then there'll be another boom. So it's not really a, a sustainable system. Um, so if we can begin to design alternatives that can replace these kind of systems that are breaking down. Um, And often these systems are propped up by us, the taxpayers. They're not actually, um, they're not actually allowed to fail because they've become so huge and monolithic. But if we do have uh, systems in place that can replace them, when they do really fail in a big way, um, We'll have things ready to take their place. Um, you know, it's always the big thing about revolution is it's great to tear things down, but you have to have something in place to replace them. Um, and I think the same thing goes with politics, like we were talking about earlier. Community, uh, a lot of community issues are political issues, um, just on a local scale. And we need to figure out ways of better dealing with that rather than the pyramid structure where there's a guy in charge, the mayor who has uh, the council, and then there's the staff, and then there's the people. And often the information only flows one way from the top down. Um, And how can we make it bottom up so that we can actually... uh, have an impact as citizens on what happens. You know, the internet was always promising all these great things and it actually could still happen where we can actually vote on everything that's being discussed um, so that there's a sense of what the community or the state or the nation wants. And actually, if you look at a lot of the polling It's pretty interesting because Americans really all want the same thing. They want uh, a job. They want some housing. You know, they want to be um, happy. um, And they generally agree on on how to get that to happen. But somehow our leadership becomes deaf to these voices and uh, the loudest voices tend to take control. And so we need to look at how can we set up a potentially new system that's efficient but also has uh, the ability to hear what people are really uh, thinking and talking about. 
I agree. I agree completely because it does seem like there's common threads with all of us as Americans that we're all looking for the same thing. And it's overall just overall well-being. And so being involved with these local grassroots efforts and paying more attention, I believe paying more attention to your local government is is actually more helpful because it's something that you can actively engage in with your fellow neighbors and your community. And that in itself creates some positive change. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I wanted to ask you, uh, what have been some of your favorite student design projects over the years? Just to give people some ideas. Um, gosh, they're all pretty interesting. Um, well, actually, last semester we did a project with the um, Coalition for Compassion and Justice, which is trying to solve the homeless problem in town here. And uh, our students did a whole study on the causes of homelessness how, how that's being addressed all around the country and then designing these tiny homes that would be uh, available to uh, people who are houseless. Um, so that was kind of fun and we, we're still working with that group to um, expand uh, the information that we've got. Um, another one that was really a favourite of mine was... Um, taking a mall, and I think you guys were a part of that, uh, taking a mall that was going to go defunct. Or, oh, yeah, the mall. Yeah. yeah was having, that was it, fun. Yeah, having real, they were having real problems uh, filling the spaces. And so uh, you all came up with a whole load of different strategies for actually making it uh, a a space uh, that would be more attractive to more people hanging out and, and, you know, using the stores and so on. That was great. Yeah, that was, that was a great project because we were taking a huge lot that was just empty and we're in court bringing in, uh, first of all, all sorts of gardens and edible uh, food and outdoor community spaces and then creating a, having apartments and, and offices and schools. So going back to that whole idea that you can walk to the grocery store and then walk to work in just, you know, five minutes and then pick up your kid from daycare all in a five minute walk. And that was just a really fun project. Another project that was really interesting because it was a little different for us was actually a whole planning project that was, um, initiated by uh, I mean, the guy who worked for the Arizona Department of Transportation, who was their environmental specialist. And there's a plan to put a big collector road uh, heading north, and it goes right through the middle of the antelope range here. So it will really impact them. And so he asked us to look at how could we um, – how could we – work with this road and actually still maintain the habitat for the antelope. And so we came up with a whole plan of land swaps and how you could actually create a wildlife corridor and how it could go under the freeway or over the freeway. And then we looked at uh, development because this is a whole area where they want to develop. And so we came up with a plan that actually used uh, compact housing and um, we found that we could actually get as many houses in the same area 
as would be conventional development, but you could also have much more open space for the antelope. And one of the interesting finds was that any house that has a a view on a natural area, you can add about $20,000 to the price of that house. So if you design the development so that every house has a view of where the antelope roam, I guess, um, you can actually uh, add a value onto your house. So that was a really interesting thing. And actually, it's, um, it's still being touted, although the developers that are looking at this area are pretty much, no, I'm going to do the same old sprawling suburbia. They, they are no longer going to do that? No, they are going to do that. Oh, they are going to do that. Bummer. Well, yeah. that was, that's uh, pretty cool, though, that someone, you know, that, that's showing some advancement that we're looking at the animals and what, how we're going to affect them yeah. when building um, suburbia. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. So let me ask me or t- tell me, what is something that you do every day that helps you live your best life? Um, well, I don't do every day, but I go to the gym twice a week (laughs) and that certainly helps. Um, but generally, you know, my life is so great because I'm, I'm sitting here, uh, looking out windows. I can see mountains. I can see granite boulders. Um, the wind is blowing now, so the trees are all moving. And, um, so for me, just, being aware of my surroundings and enjoying it and not letting it become old hat, uh, that's one of the things that I think makes my day really feel uh, special. Uh, I feel really privileged to actually be here in this location. Um, I've tried to, to minimize the amount of disturbance I did to the land, um, so for me, it's actually having this contact with nature that's an everyday experience, and that's really great. And the other nice thing, even though I have to use a car, it's only eight minutes to the studio, so I really have no long commutes, uh, which really helps a lot in terms of I have more time than people have to commute an hour or two each way. And uh, so that really makes my day feel better. I used to have coffee every day, and now I don't. <laughs> coffee really. No uh, more coffee? <laughs> I, I love coffee, but <laughs> it was one of those things. Um, and uh, I, you know, I think that's about it. I just try and be aware of everything around me and enjoying it as much as I can. And of course, going to the studio every day and having the students there is just so energizing. It really makes my day feel like, um, you know, I'm making progress of some kind. And you are, you are. And I really want to just uh, applaud you, Tony, for designing a curriculum and program that helps students connect to themselves, to each other, the planet and all life on earth. And that, that drastically changes their approach to life and design. I just want to say thank you so much uh, from, I know all of the COSA alumni uh, join me in thanking you for that. So uh, thank you. Sure, you're more than welcome.
it's it's an exchange, not a gift. Yes. <laughs> so I get as much as I give. So. Well, thank thanks so much, Tony. Sure, you're welcome. I'm Teresa Gabrielle, and you've been listening to The Good with Teresa G. You can follow The Good with Teresa G on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. If you haven't yet, go to the Apple Podcast and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another inspiring conversation. Thank you for listening.